Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from Salzburg, Austria. His name is Fred, J.B. Fred Eberline, and he just published a book July 3rd, 2022. Full title is The 90 Degree Turn, Remaking Federal Government from Big, Bulky, and Misguided to Lean, Decentralized, and Relevant. Very timely uh, subject and very interesting book. It goes into his background of him being in D.C. and kind of working within the budgeting system and how D.C. operates from the, how the sausage is made, so to speak. But he can talk more about that. So, Fred Everline, welcome to the show. William, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So for people who may not, this is your first book. Can you talk about your background? You go into your uh, career in detail in the book. Can you mm -hmm. talk about the whole process of your work life and what led you to write The 90 Degree Turn? Sure. Well, I went to Washington, D.C. in uh, a long time ago, 1975, to go to graduate school at American University. I had studied in Europe, actually in Austria, uh, where I am now, um, back in those ancient times, and I really loved it. It had a big impact on, on my life. And so when I returned to the States for my senior year and finished college, I wanted to work towards getting in foreign affairs. So Washington was obviously a great place for doing that. And I went to grad school at American University for, with the aim of, you know, maybe getting into the Department of State or the CIA or some other foreign services. Uh, and as soon as I was in the program studying in government and public administration, I was really shocked uh, to learn that the focus was not on solving problems as much as it was spending money. And that just set me back. And I realized that this would not be the life for me. And shortly thereafter, I found myself as a salesman working for a, a really great company. Uh, most people don't know of today, but at the time it was quite big, Control Data Corporation. And uh, CDC was a great company out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, that was a turning point in my life, working with them and the folks there. But that was when I first got to see how government operates. And I worked and sold to the government, uh, later going to Oracle and then coming to Europe with Oracle to work with the U.S. Army in Germany after the wall came down. But over and over again, you know, the theme was quite apparent that it was all about spending money and results, you know, often just didn't matter. Uh, it seemed that the only results that matters was, was how much you spent. Did you empty your budget? The busiest month of the year, indeed, the only time of the year that I've ever seen a silver servant, not knocking them, but saw, saw them in, in, on weekends would be in September. And that was because they had to empty their budgets uh, by the end of September. Uh, and I don't want to pick on any, any, anybody in particular. I think our system, as I write in the book, is the way it is in large part because we're old. We're 233 years old. And it's nothing to be ashamed about. We can be proud of it. But we need to be real. And... You know, if we look at some of the re reports and studies that Ray Dalio has done and others, there's a cycle. And we need to look, we need to assume we're on the downside of that cycle. And, you know, we can change that, though. And Dalio says that, too, and I believe it as well. But we need to be clever. We need to take a new approach to government. We have come a huge way in so many respects since 1779. I mean, just to, you, you named the field, you know, management sciences, technology, of course, that 
uh, knowledge that people have today. You may, you know, think that your neighbor is an, is an idiot, but he or she is probably vastly more knowledgeable than their than their doppelganger would have been in 1789. So we have access to a lot, and I'm always amazed at the inventiveness of people as well. Uh, we see that all the time on YouTube. Uh, just go searching for a, a solution. So I think we could do a lot collectively, and we have, you know, in our 233 years, we've built in a massive infrastructure uh, that really is just taking away from the value of government. You know, it's overhead on top of overhead. And it's not just the people and the structure and the size of agencies, it's the, it's the laws. As I note in the book, uh, quote from the Library of Congress, and somebody was asking in a block, how many laws do we have? Answer, we really don't know. Right, just like how many people work for the federal government. Yeah, right? we really like don't know. Book, we don't know. We can say how there's at least two million. Tax code? We really don't know. Nobody knows it. So is that anyone's fault? No, I don't want to get into the finger pointing. It, it solves nothing, but we should recognize that all of this puts a huge burden on, on any system. If it was a corporate system, it wouldn't be any different, I don't think, or you know, maybe slightly more productive. But we're hugely inefficient, and it's just you see it everywhere in government, and even the agencies like inspector general's offices that should be, and they do, I'm not saying they don't do their job, but a lot of what they do is wasted because nobody acts on it. I point out in some of their reports uh, that they, and if you go to their website, uh, to the, what is it, integrity.com or whatever it is, I forgot the name, but you know, there you see reports that or compensation for potential uh, benefits, not real. So they're awarding themselves, you know, they call it, refer to it as like, you know, money, but it's potential savings. It's not real savings. You know? So what the hell is potential savings? So, you know, the government runs on the idea of potentially we did something good and that's good for the country. And I say bull loney to that. It has to be real. And if it can't be real, then don't waste your time and our money doing it. And we spend a lot of money just on busy work. We're a very busy country, but unfortunately, extremely unproductive when I talk about the federal government. Other segments of, our, of the US are amazingly efficient, but the federal government is at the, at the far end. Anyway, I think I got a bit off track with your question. No, but, but I think that's very important because you are looking at the problems in government, the lack of efficiency, the lack of yeah. funding restraints. You use the healthcare.gov website, Halliburton. Right. There's so many right. examples of overspending, misspending. And we have we're at we're kicking the can down the road. We have a thirty yeah. trillion dollar deficit right. that we're just financing with paper and money. And at some point it can't it can't go on, yeah. Yeah, they think that that's gone from was it five point six billion a national debt accumulated with 200 years of, of annual deficits, which today is up over 25 billion more, or trillion more, excuse me. Within the last 20 years. A billion before I met $5.6 trillion in our first 200 years. And to think that's 6X today. And that's the real crux of the problem in my analysis. The inefficiency of the government's one thing. 
But I believe, and you know, it's a bit cynical perhaps, but I think it's true that Congress are elected officials because they're so dependent on campaign financing that they exploit this complexity, okay? As I write in the book, it provides camouflage to fundraising-centric politics. And that's what, that's the, the real uh, crux of the issue, I believe. That's the focal point because Congress is inherently, uh, I must say, corrupt insofar as they depend on raising money to stay in office. It's just part of the job. And it shouldn't be, but it is. And it's a bigger and bigger and bigger piece of it. And the money not only, it's not speaking, you know, in the democratic voice, it's weighing the scales and benefit of the people that are already in office. So as I note in the book, uh, back in the 70s, uh, the professor at Yale, Mayhew, noticed that there was a shrinking number of, of the turnover in people and Congress was, was shrinking. He really didn't know why. Today we have a much better understanding and it's the money goes to people, to the incumbent more than the up and coming candidate. The incumbent is more likely to win. So you wanna, you know, if you're a pharma or, or banks, you wanna bet on the winning horse. So money has had a very bad influence on the whole system in many respects. And I believe that's the focal point. And that's why I said, and that's obviously the most controversial point in the whole book is that Congress should be removed from its control over money. Um, obviously, this yeah. doesn't happen overnight. It's a phase thing, but I'd rather, I know some states are inefficient too, but I'd rather have the states managing it now just because of the gross negligence we see in Washington. It's almost like you got to come in and rescue these guys. They're, you know, it's like they're shooting up heroin and, we, you know, we have to stop them before they kill themselves and us. Right. And us, right? Like the crazy yeah. drivers at the helm, driving us, spending trillions and trillions of dollars. Well, they live in this, yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say they live in this falsehood, and this has been promoted by many uh, people, like on the you know monetary modern monetary theory, is that that is okay, and that's half true. That's half true, but the debt has to be put to good use. And we're not seeing that at all. I mean, really, <laughs> infrastructure is falling apart and everything, you know, and yet and lots of other issues, of course, we won't go into them, but. Um, but the money, the money involvement, it facilitates the incumbent to win, which creates another issue, which is we're not ruled by young, vibrant, free new thinkers. We're being ruled by a gerontocracy like yes. that. Some of these people, I mean, I don't understand what Pelosi says half the time. Biden, yeah, we're not getting, the best and the brightest are not in there or incentivized to get in there. Very difficult, right? Yeah, there really needs to be more turnover. What I say in the book is Congress, you know, I'm not for removing or eliminating it, but I am for having them refocus. And one area they focus on is being good managers, connecting the needs of 
their constituencies and states and districts with resources and assets from Washington. That's part of the idea here. Um, and the purpose of that is to identify what areas of the federal government's bureaucracy are most needed. That's what I call bottom-up separation. So we reshape the government, the federal government, based on local needs. And that's what people in Congress could be doing. Maybe they're not good managers. There's too many They're supposed to be attached to their constituency, right? And that's kind you of one think. of your themes in the book is the solutions are bottom-up, not top-down. Right. It's a bottom-up. The bottom-up, as I say, is bottom-up separation. So the idea is through the needs monitor. And this is, okay, broad strokes. This is a theory, right? So I didn't want to go into every last detail. It would bore the hell out of the reader. It's like, you know, how do you explaining how to tie a shoelace. But this, the broad strokes are there. And the idea is that through the needs monitor, in which we assess the needs of every American that wants to participate on whatever range of issues they may have, we consolidate that and uh, do have the, the local governments or the state governments send these as packaged RFPs to Washington. So we're doing the reverse rather than Washington producing the request for proposal and putting it out to bid, the states do it and they do it to Washington. And that way people within the federal government can you know, participate in responding. Um, maybe it's a certain department or multiple departments. I think we'll see there's a lot of redundancy and overlap in Washington. So this is one way of identifying that. So the idea here is to really give civil servants in Washington new opportunities and then to connect them in the process to the people on the ground that have the real need. And then we, we begin working through that. And it's a process. It's, it's not like you would state a need and then, you know, that's it, go away. It's monitoring how that's being fulfilled. So, um, sorry, I just had something come up well, my screen. No, and so then, um, so that's one of the solutions, but there are other things that you believe should be implemented as well, right, to ameliorate or make this 90-degree turn. You use actually this term as kind of like a, you use it, you got it, or at least from what I read in right. the example of Intel chips, right, how they took Correct. it. Correct. Yeah, it was from the story that they called it a right turn in the startup nation about Israel. Um, and in there, they had a very interesting, they had several vignettes, but one was about the uh, the struggle between Intel Tel Aviv and Intel Cupertino, California, and and yeah, the the moral of the story was that Intel had to abandon old ways and get on with a new way, and this was not easy. You know, uh, the management in California just wanted to keep focusing on megahertz and speed, and the guys in R and D in in Israel. Uh, who were influenced, I think, not just by engineering, but the real life, you know, the struggle they have every day for survival. They, they take a harder look at things. That was kind of the main theme of the book here. And then, you know, kiss up to management. They said, guys, you, you've got to change the architecture. So eventually they did. And they came out with the Pentium chip. And yeah, the point in the book is that we need to do similar. So I took their right turn concept and from that made a 90 degree turn. Um, I didn't, right turn would have probably sounded like I was 
you know, might, like might be party affiliation or something. And I really want to break from that. We parties are killing us and we should get on as Americans solving problems. Sitting yeah. You down. never mentioned Republican or Democrat in this book. It's not. No, not well, I, you know, I don't. No, I, I think it, I only mention the context to say this is not a political issue. This is a human issue. These are mostly human issues. First of all, money. I mean, you know, I like money. You like money. We all like money. It's easy if someone's coming and, you know, giving you big donations to just, you know, rationalize your position. And I think that's what happens. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, you mentioned her. What's she worth today? I think it's over $135 million. How does that happen? Your husband, that? your husband does stock picks based upon budgetary spending, just like everybody else. <laughs> just Their family members handle a lot all. of their business deals uh, with insider information, is my guess. Yeah, they, it, it was legal up until... You know, 15 years ago, but uh, right. I mean, I think they just got caught. I think they, uh, Paul Pelosi got caught buying stocks for the NVIDIA chips or whatever from Taiwan. All I know is that over the years, she's given her husband, who's does you know, she, she'll say that he does all the buying and she doesn't have any involvement with that, but I doubt that. Yeah, well, I've heard, I've heard that some of these. Some of these yeah. offices in Washington themselves have a stock uh, analyst who's buying in the office, who's making stock trades based upon what's going on. I've heard that. Oh, yeah. But, there's, yeah. there's special groups now that are focused on just doing that. It's actually I bring that out in the book, too, because it's not used to be insider trading. And now it's no longer allowed. But there's other ways of getting information and uh exploiting it and make yeah make so it. i mean corruption is definitely part of it too but it's all become corrupt like even even just the systems of the, the fundamental systems of government pharma healthcare. there's no incentive to lower cost or prices like the u.s government is paying list price to, to big pharma right and that's that's everyone's involuntary donation to a campaign that's exactly what it is. You are being forced to pay a higher price for your drugs because CMS is not allowed to negotiate. I just heard, I think it was on the news today that this is coming up again. They're negotiating. <laughs> this has been going on for 20 years, guys. But, um, you know, so yeah, they can't negotiate. So we end up paying a higher price. We have some people going to Canada for their meds. Uh, despite the fact that they're made by U.S. companies. And, and that, that's, that's a penalty for everyone, uh, getting those meds. And that money, the difference is their donation. Whether they know it or not, that's what it is. That's the payback. Um, Two-thirds of members of Congress receive money from pharma. Two-thirds. And it's uh, astonishing. I mean, it, it is interesting, too, that these campaigns in some other countries, they only allow you to campaign or get money raising for six weeks out of the year. There's certain things like that. Like, why don't we have those rules? Why don't we have the money out? Why don't we? And that there's other public financing of campaigns. I mean, it's there's there are options, right? There are. I, I, to me, sometimes maybe it's too philosophical, but I think we've let freedom go too far. 
I mean, I like freedom, but freedom, the, the flip side of freedom is order um, and maybe some modesty and moderation, you know, and it's just kind of going off the rails because it's like, you know, I have the money to spend. I can say whatever I want, right? You know, within the law. And we don't seem to take stock of the fact that if someone's on television much more often than their opposing candidate, they're just going to get the chances of them winning is higher. The other thing, and this comes out in, uh, in my book too, and I <clears throat> quote Kahneman, uh, who uh, wrote this great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and really, you know, he's a behavioral economist that won a Nobel Prize in, I think it was 2002. But he, he, he says in that book, I think the most important words were that negativity and escape dominate positivity and approach. Negativity in campaigns, beating up on the opponent, whether it's right or wrong, is, you know, unfortunately tapping into the worst part of the human animal. And uh, when we only... You know, we don't break past that to try to understand other people. We don't mind like the Ten Commandments. You know, what was it? Is it commandment number nine? Thou shalt not bear fault witness. <laughs> I'm, I'm not particularly religious, but I've read that much of the Bible, you know. And uh, why don't we do that? It stops saying nasty things about other people, particularly when we don't know. So there's a lot of negativity in our system today. And... Uh, but I'm not even looking at that right now. I do touch on it in the book, but I, I think the important thing again is emphasize it, that what we see in, in our Congress, as corrupt as it is, is human behavior 101. And I don't think I'd be any different if I was there. I'd get caught up to it. You would, most of us do. You know, you get all the attention, the glamour, you're intoxicated with this attention. And, uh, you know, and, you know, that's nice to a point, but they're intoxicated all the time. Right. And I mean, there's the stories of people going to Washington to do good and being corrupted by the system are legion. Like, that happens all yeah. the time. Like, well-meaning people. Next thing you know, they get used to the good life, the high life. It's, uh, yeah, those I mean, districts around these. Yeah. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. I'm, that's it's okay. rude. They they have in D.C. Those are the most the uh, the residential areas around D.C. are now the wealthiest residential areas by mean income, I think, in the country. So yeah, there's a lot of money there for sure. A lot of cash, a lot of easy money, a lot of easy money floating around. Well, that's um, what I witnessed too. I was going to say, you know, I went through that process myself. I mean, getting you know first going in and thinking I was going to serve my customers in the federal government. And over time, I began to realize it was just about helping them spend their money, you know, and finding the fastest way to do that. Well, here's the other thing is if we do not take a 90 degree turn, what are the consequences? I mean, is this ship just going to hit a big iceberg? Well, I don't know. You know, I do say in the book, one threat or potential threat I put out there is losing the world reserve currency. Um, most, I think most Americans aren't even aware of it uh, and uh, don't, don't realize that as a country, this is a, has been a huge benefit uh, since 
I think it was secured in 1944. Uh, the EU has said they want to be the next world currency. And uh, their GDP is almost the size as the same size as the U.S. So I'm of the I'm of the belief, and of course we see it now today. I wrote it before the war started, but the more aggression that we see from Russia, the more desperate Europe will be to have an alliance with China. And there's a lot of good reasons for that, not the least of which is that China has a 2,700 mile long border with Russia and nobody, the only country that Russia fears is China, frankly. Um, so it, the European Union really wanted to bring Putin under control. I think they would do it through China. And part of that pivot, part of that transition could involve a change of world currency status to the EU. And again, they've been open about this. Uh, and so we shouldn't take it for granted. So I think, you know, when the world sees it, you know, there's a lot of great things about America, American industry and everything still are leaders in the world. But when they see our government behaving the way it is and spending the way it has and the, the debt <clears throat> growing the way it is, then it, that impacts the, the, um, the value, you know, and, and impacts the, the brand, if you will. And, and it uh, really is the brand, the military power and the brand of the U.S. If that gets diminished, what, what's the consequence if the U.S. loses its world reserve currency status? Well, with the big debt that, you know, the national <clears throat> debt that we have, uh, you know, the interest rates jumping, presumably a lot, uh, because it's not as easy to get money, uh, you know. I'm not an economist, so I, I really don't <laughs> can't really go into a lot of details on it uh, because I don't know. But it's not a good thing, and we do know, you know, money uh, interest rates will go higher, and uh, that'll likely um, have to be made up for some way. And when I see already that the projection is that Social Security will be cut by I think 21 percent in 2035. That's 13 years away. Um, so, you know, an event like that could just, you know, make for even bigger cuts in the Social Security. When you do that, now you, you, you've got millions of people that will be pushed into poverty. That's when we begin to really slip over the side. But I think it's clear to everybody we're on a downward trajectory. The numbers clearly show that. And the gross inefficiency of the federal government and the recklessness. I mean, honestly, you've got to wonder, how did they get to Iraq? Right. <laughs> how did we do that? And nobody was held accountable. I'm sorry, you know? Um, That's one of the reasons why we have a $30 trillion debt. I mean, I think they blew seven, eight trillion, nine trillion. I, it's about that. Yeah, I think it is. And there, I mean, just the money that was made Halliburton and the cost and the over expenditures were could have yeah. been a huge money laundering operation to yeah. like a side to it. So that's the old cost plus fee, uh, fixed fee. Uh, I mentioned in the book, that's been a source of ripping off the government since I was in Washington, you know, um, and uh, you'd like to get contracts like that. 
you know, you basically can name your <laughs> your revenue goal. Right. I mean, you talk about those requests for proposal or whatever, where people are just writing what they think you should spend and they're all kind of working together, even the salesmen, the sales elites yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I would, sure, write yeah. Him, if, I would write them if the client was prepared to take it. We did. That was part of our job. We were like lobbyists, you know. Lobbyists would come in and, you know, uh, suggest some new legislation, maybe give you a white paper on it. Uh, we did similar things, but with technical requirements. And, of course, the impact we had wasn't as big, usually. It was just, you know, within a department or whatever. Um, I didn't do any multi-billion dollar deals. But. But they do happen, right? I mean, look at the defense budgets, what, $750 billion? Like, you want to talk right. about bloat. Didn't, didn't right. uh, Rumsfeld say we lost $2 trillion? Like, it's an incredible sums of money are just disappeared. Just disappeared. Well, it's, yeah, absolutely. And what's really sad, and I bring this up in the book, too, is this report out of the Washington Post uh, several years ago, um, Woodward was on it with another reporter and they had identified, well, they had disclosed the report that had been written uh, for the Pentagon on efficiency, on um, you know, savings. And that $125 billion had been identified. And then I think it was McKenzie who did the report. And the, the Pentagon, you know, it's like, burn that thing, shred it, hide it. And of course, you know, eventually it was leaked to the press and it appeared in the Washington Post. But to think, $125 billion that could have been saved. And this, by the way, was without any drastic cuts. It wasn't like they were going to lay off 10% of the Pentagon. No, this was, you know, early retirement, some, you know, conventional approaches, right, to saving money. And all they wanted to do was bury it for fear that, you know, Congress would say you're overspending. And of course they know Congress never would anyway, but this is the game. This is the game and it's a damn costly one. It's got to stop. Costly. Yeah. 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 I mean, what'll happen is, is that we won't be able to sustain the debt. People won't buy our debt. And then, then right. it's just, it would just be an apocalyptic situation. Like you, the money, uh, yeah, there would just be massive interest rates like back in the 70s, 18, 19%, 15%. Yeah. The, the other thing that, you know, not just the money, it's the fact that we're so damn inefficient. You know, it's, it, it's not just about money. It, it's about efficiency and value. Um, I think that's really what's missing. You know, I mean, every time there's a problem comes up, you know, there's billions of dollars that are going to be allocated to addressing it and you know that those are all good intentions but the follow-through is just pathetic the yeah, efficiency it does it doesn't exist i mean i calculate for every dollar spent by the federal government we get less than half a penny of value in return it's nothing it's incredible so we're we're paying you know about i do it that's the the value gap right talk about a standard you know I think, you know, Ford sedan or whatever. Um, and what that costs and what it costs to make, what it costs to buy. And 
you know, that's pretty good value. You you buy a truck like that or a, a car, excuse me, and you're getting about 91% value. It, the balance, 9% is the profit. Uh, understandable. But you go to healthcare.gov and there's a website that the taxpayers paid $2 billion for at this point. A website, a website. That is insane. I mean, when it, when it was launched in October of 2013, I was watching CNN and I nearly fell off the couch because I, I, you know, I've been involved in website projects. I'm a, I have a background in technology. I started my own healthcare company. We developed a rather sophisticated website and I paid for the whole thing. And I can tell you it it wasn't was it two billion? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, I mean, their initial budget was, I think, ninety-seven million dollars. And even that was over. Like it, somebody did an analysis and guesstimated that the actual real market cost was four or five million for healthcare.gov, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so where did all I, that money go? Yeah. That's that would have been a reasonable price. That's what I did. My actually, I did my analysis based on ten million dollars. I thought $10 million is a very conservative estimate uh, for that. I mean, I'm, it's on the high side, in other words, you know. Um, me and my, our team would have been, we would have taken it for like $2 million. It would have, we would have been ecstatic. Over. I don't even think it worked right, too. It didn't work right when I it came out. I think we would have had it working, right, because we knew how to test and whatnot. Um, but when it went, I don't think I finished my point a moment ago, but when it was announced in October 2013, it was like $634 million. Six, I, I, <laughs> I practically had an aneurysm. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And then to see that Health and Human Services Attorney General's report that came out in the following year, in 2014, which I cited the book, and that point, the cost was, I think, $1.7 billion. Yeah. I mean, those are just one, those are just one example of things that happen, but there's stuff like that is that's standard practice, Washington misspending and it is siphoning off funds and things like that. Yeah. I never, when I was in DC for three years, I had the weirdest conversations with people about laundering money through Switzerland. Like people were talking about that. Like how can we get this out? Like that, that was really happened. I had multiple conversations in bars and weird places about money laundering and siphoning off funds and fake invoices. Like that's the way people that's think there. Or some foreign F, uh, what was that about though? Oh, just kind of just about in any, whatever are whatever they were working on, they were uh -huh. wondering how they could, they could extract a little bit of uh, juice for themselves. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were all lower level people like me in their, in their late twenties. So <laughs> They weren't like the really sophisticated executive types, but people there's there's an underground there. There's no question in DC in my mind. There's a there's kind of an underground economy type thing going on. But well, no, these, I mean, they, yeah, they the the government. Yeah, well, there's certain things that don't have oversight. The the Defense Department doesn't really have. There, you, I don't think there's even one kind of case of fraud ever brought up against the Defense Department. Like, I can't even think of one. And some of these bo the, these expenditures, especially for the military planes, are boondoggles. Billions and billions of trillions of dollars spent on these projects a lot without uh, 
some things to show. So there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of misspending. It's really a problem for future generations. This country hasn't faced before. They've definitely been in financial straits, but this whole debt situation is very, very thing. Uh, Fred, we're at 36 minutes. I think we should kind of move towards wrapping it up. What would you like to add or anything I missed? Or, and, and then tell people where they can get the book and reach out to you as well. So. Yeah, well, they want to go to Amazon. And uh, that's where the book is in paperback and, uh, and Kindle. It's a short book, 124 pages. I wanted to keep it simple, easy to read, uh, because it's, for me, kind of a beginning point. It is a philosophy. It's a concept. Some maybe prefer to call it that or a blueprint. But I, I put forward these ideas on how I think we can rescue our federal government, bring value to it, and just help the whole country and actually get Americans involved in government again in a good way, uh, where they can say, yeah, here's an issue and here's a solution to that uh, based on whatever it is, you know? Um, I think the local governments, again, ought to be the ones driving it. I think when it comes to things, speaking of defense and Department of, the, uh, Department of Defense, and they're spending, I think if we bring some of those decisions like stealth bombers, I mentioned in the book, many, many other examples, but if we start looking at that in proportionality to other needs in the country, we might determine that we don't need to, you know, an arsenal that's uh, five to five X, <laughs> the next biggest one. Right. You know, and I think this is part of it. So the idea is to bring proportionality into the discussion and for people to begin to realize that, you know, they're going to spend hundreds of billions on something, um, you know, for one thing, when that money could be applied to maybe something else. And it's really to help bring balance and common sense and streamlining into government and into our lives. Right. It makes perfect sense. It's definitely should these principles you have in your book should be applied to D.C. immediately and then where's the best place for people to reach out to you if they want to talk to you or ask questions about the book? Well, I give, the, I give my email at the end of the book because I want to stay in touch. Uh, I can announce my email address now. It's jbfred.eberline at gmail.com. So anyone's uh, happy to hear from folks. And my plan going forward is to try to build on this and create the dialogues, have discussions, and maybe, hopefully, at some point, um, I'm reaching out to some academic institutions, but there are any listening, I'd like to do some mock-ups. I think the next logical step, and this would be going back to my tech background, you know, before we, we build something, we want to model it. We want to prototype it. We want to see where its weaknesses are, um, you know, and that's the process I would take. It's highly iterative. You start with a mock-up, you have the concept, you work through it. And that can be done in a number of settings. Probably, you know, would be most logical, though, to do it in an academic setting. So, um, but I'm open to other ideas because, as they say a lot in the book, uh, you know, we really need to take the steps. Uh, no doubt. Yeah, no and doubt. again, your, your email is jbfred.eberline at gmail.com. And I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, we'll distribute yes. it. Mm -hmm. And again... It really interesting book. Well done. I appreciate your time. Title of the book, again, is The 90 Degree Turn, Remaking Federal Government 
from big, bulky, and misguided to lean, decentralized, and relevant. Just published July 3rd, 2022. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, William. Pleasure to meet you. All right, likewise. Stay there.